And when we first started getting cases on Canadian soil, yeah, I became very anxious, uh, scared, fearful, because I knew working in the hospital that I would be one of the physicians uh, encountering these patients on a daily basis and exposing myself and my family and whoever else. Hello and welcome and thank you for joining us on It Is Written for this special discussion with Dr. Brandon Kapersky who is a hospitalist, a medical doctor in British Columbia. Uh, because we are on lockdown, of course, we can't meet face-to-face, -face, so we are having and recording this Zoom uh, discussion with him today. We feel so honored to be able to have this conversation with Dr. Brandon Kapersky. So welcome, Dr. Kapersky. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. We are looking forward to talking to you about the realities of this pandemic from your point of view, because you work in the hospital and you're right in the front lines, and also how your faith is helping you in this crisis and how to face this crisis. And we also want to ask our listeners, if you have any comments or questions, you can type those in the comment section and uh, we will look at those and, and respond to you on those. So let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll dive straight into our questions. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for giving us this technology, this opportunity, so that we can talk with uh, Dr. Brandon Kapersky and, and uh, thank you for his uh, willingness to talk about what, what he's experiencing in a hospital uh, during this crisis of COVID-19 and help us to to learn from this and see how you are, are helping him and, and helping patients and helping us here in Canada uh, in this time of crisis. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So once again, thank you, uh, Dr. Kapersky, for joining us. Uh, I just want to begin by talking to you about the realities of this pandemic um, from your point of view, um, what you're seeing in the hospital, you know, what is the atmosphere uh, where, where you are working? And um, have you seen patients or uh, fellow doctors who have been tested with COVID-19? Yeah, yeah, actually I have seen patients and physicians who've actually tested positive for COVID-19. Some of them are actually getting admitted into the hospital and some to the intensive care unit. And some of my colleagues I've actually seen back after they've been self-isolated at home for, you know, the 14 day period. Uh, and are still having some symptoms, but at least they're back at work and have done quite well uh, through it. Meanwhile, other patients are spending longer times in the hospital and some unfortunately are passing away uh, here in BC as well. Mm -hmm. I saw the death rate was up to 50 today. So we're slowly creeping up. Mm -hmm. When you're seeing this, um, uh, I guess this is, this is pretty hard on you because you know these people, you get connected with them. Um, yeah, so continue, uh, how, how, you, how you're seeing all that. Yeah, yeah and I mean, uh, people being sick and death and dying is something that physicians kind of get used to seeing, but huh. it is one of those things where a lot of the people coming in uh, normally wouldn't be sick and in the hospital. This is something that is changing the course of their life so that they're coming in uh, where they were normally pretty healthy and doing quite fine, some of them 
One of them I even saw was a dentist at one of our dental conferences in his 50s, came in otherwise healthy and ended up going to the ICU. And uh, other patients are just coming in with their normal health problems being a little bit exacerbated by the disease and spending time in the hospital because of that, because of an increased difficulty with breathing. And uh, so they're unable to tolerate being home while they go through this disease. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something that's quite uh, new since we haven't seen it before. And the ones that get sick are really sick. You know, they, these patients um, deteriorate quite rapidly. And so it's shocking when you, when you see someone who just comes in, they look quite fine besides being short of breath. And within a few hours, they're needing to be on a ventilator for, for supporting their life because they can't breathe on their own. Mm. And um, tell me, Dr. Kapuski, how has the hospital um, got ready and prepared for this pandemic? Mm. Yeah, so actually, when it all started, you know, a few, you know, a month or two ago, when we started having the odd case from travelers coming back from around the world, um, I would say the hospital staff, probably everyone in admin and everything was kind of nervous because from what we are seeing from around the world, a lot of health, um, you know, hospitals going under big stress because of the patient loads. So everyone started feeling the stress. And at the same time, our administration started preparing and they, what they did was reduce all of the non-essential, you know, admissions basically. So everything that was, you know, scheduled surgeries were canceled. A lot of the clinics that uh, were unnecessary were canceled. They've done a lot of telehealth now. So a lot of the doctors and clinics are seeing their patients over the you know, computer like this. Mm -hmm. And also we've been able to discharge a lot of the patients because we usually run at 100, 110% capacity. Our hospital has patients in hallways all the time. Uh, but now we're down to a point where we're only seeing about 50% of the presentations to the ER and our hospital census is maybe at like two thirds of what it usually is. So that's quite a outstanding feat, I would say, uh, in the Canadian healthcare system. So they've actually got things pretty under control if we are to get a wave of uh, COVID admissions. So if, you, if that does happen, you, yeah. it sounds like you are fully prepared at the hospital where you are. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say so. Uh, the, probably the main concern now is they still keep feeling like this wave is potentially coming despite all of the uh, acts that we've done to prevent or flatten the curve. And now I would say the biggest concern in hospitals and around the country is the personal protective equipment. That's mm -hmm. the next biggest thing. How do we protect the staff? and the patients who are admitted to the hospital from you know, getting this disease themselves and being taken out of the workforce for a two week period or more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, Dr. Kapuski, can you tell us about this virus? Like what are the symptoms like as they progress? Uh -huh. And what is the percentage of people that are needing medical assistance from the hospital? Yeah. So the virus is a coronavirus. And the funny thing is when we learn about it in med school, they say it's, it's usually something that causes only mild symptoms. But these more recent ones like SARS, and this is a different mm -hmm. uh, coronavirus, and it attacks your um, system by going in usually through the nose, mouth, or eyes. That's how most are contracting it. Or, uh, you know, you touch something, touch your face. And most of the initial symptoms are respiratory, so breathing, you'll have a cough, you know, runny, not usually runny nose, but now they're saying you could, sore throat, and a bit of a fever. And then you can also have muscle aches and pains, 
joint back pains, stuff like that. And uh, they've extended the list of symptoms, even I saw today, to include stuff like diarrhea. So all symptoms that can be normally associated with flu. But in most of the cases, like 95% or more, it's fairly mild symptoms, you know, something you would normally experience with a cold. And then the issue is, even for those patients, uh, the average time to patients actually start having trouble is about six and a half days. And at that point, they'll start developing shortness of breath. And this is the later onset of the viral pneumonia. And this is what we're seeing is the reason most people are, are requiring life support is at six and a half days, they start getting short of breath. And at that point, if patients have shortness of breath, they definitely should seek medical attention. Before that, we're telling patients stay at home, isolate, and don't go out in public. Mm-hmm. If you have any shortness of breath, you need to go to medical care as soon as possible because they're showing that within the next two days, people are ending up on mechanical ventilation or life support, you know, intubation on the ventilator. So that's a fairly rapid deterioration. And what happens is people, you know, are a little bit scared to go to the hospital right now. So they wait, Mm -hmm. they show up and they're already so sick that they need to go straight into the ICU on the ventilator. So we'd tell people not to do that. I just heard, I think it was yesterday or the day before, a 40-year-old gentleman who was COVID positive died at home. Mm. So who knows what happened, but maybe he himself waited a little bit too long. So these are the concerning things of the virus and that viral pneumonia that's a late onset and uh, really is what makes people really sick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the percentage of people who are needing medical assistance? Yeah, so I was just looking at... uh, the numbers, right? Like I said, 98, 95, 98% are pretty mild cases and usually don't need hospitalization. So I'd say uh, the number of critical care patients in the world is around 4%. In Canada, it's about 3% of the ones who test positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's why the whole concern about flattening the curve, because the larger number of patients you have positive, the bigger that number is going to be. And once that number gets too big, you just cannot take care of those patients because we don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. It takes so long for them to be on a respirator to get over the pneumonia. Yeah. yeah, that is the other part of this disease that we're noting is that uh, normally people with the pneumonia might be able to get off the ventilator a little sooner, mm-hmm. but these patients are lasting on a ventilator a week, two weeks, three weeks, mm-hmm. and not able to actually get off the ventilator and breathe on their own again. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the reality, I'm not, you're in British Columbia. Um, mm-hmm. If we look across the country, uh, Quebec, for instance, is, is, in, is in big trouble compared to mm-hmm to BC. Why is that the case? Well, when we are looking back, we kind of can postulate what happened. We think maybe because their spring break was earlier and because of the proximity to the United States, you know, New York area and the other highly endemic areas and maybe European travel. uh, If these families were gone on vacation during spring break, during that period of time, most of the travelers were having a high exposure risk. So they probably brought a lot of it back with them, uh, unfortunately, to Quebec uh, because of just the timing. And now we're seeing the impact of that. A lot of the cases are showing up in eastern Canada, whereas out west, our vacation was a little bit later. And, you know, even myself, I think a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, I was supposed to be in Mexico, but... (laughs) 
with the shutdown happened a week or so before that even came around and we are probably saved ourselves because of what happened, you know, in other parts of the country and U.S. just flaring up right at the right time. So we had time to prepare and shut things down as quickly as possible. So what we're seeing is uh, this flattening or slowing of the cases. Mm -hmm. So these students, I'm understanding that the younger, younger, uh, you know, students, who are in high school or college. So if they had a spring break in Quebec, they were coming back, they were bringing the the virus with them and infecting their families. And I guess it's it's mm -hmm. affecting their older relatives. Yeah, that that is probably one of the key things to this virus that makes people both, you know, not seem to worry about as much, but it's also the very concerning thing about it because uh, up to 80% of people have very mild symptoms and they will carry the virus and shed it and spread it with their family and relatives without even really knowing that they're infected or have this serious virus in their system. Mm -hmm. So they pick it up somewhere when they're traveling and go home and expose you know, their parents or their grandparents who are much higher risk, who unfortunately, if they were to contract it from their you know, child who is in school, uh, could become very compromised. And even look at the United States numbers yesterday, they were saying about 38, 40% of the hospitalized population is in between the ages of uh, 20 and 55. So whereas a lot of the first hype was that, oh, it's an older person disease, you know, people who are dying anyways, that doesn't seem to be the case. We have a very large, you know, almost half of the people in the hospital are people who would you consider, you know, going to school, working class uh, people still. Mm. So they're still getting symptoms then. Uh, yeah, those it may not be life threatening for the younger crowd, but they're still getting symptoms. And yeah, uh, and these ones, these 40%, I mean, those are the ones who are actually sick, even though the, the percentage of younger folks who get symptoms, there are still that percentage that get very ill, despite age, usually because of comorbidities. Um, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, uh, previous lung diseases, and cancers. Those are the di diagnoses that if you already have those, it unfortunately doesn't matter what your age is, you're at high risk of needing hospitalization. Mm. Mm. You, you, um, you had mentioned to us before about super spreaders when we spoke to you about this. Um, explain that term. Yeah, so that's like these asymptomatic people, right? Because right now, all we're testing is people who have symptoms and mostly just people who are needing healthcare, like staying in healthcare. So these younger people who are exposed and contract the disease actually are shedding virus. Their respiratory you know, secretions, droplets, if they cough, will be spreading the same amount of virus or more than these older, sicker patients who are you know, in hospital or at home. And they are going around living uh, normal lives, like walking around in the stores, doing everything you and me would do and, and in, um, at work. And that's where you get these super spreaders and why so many of the care homes have been hit because a lot of the healthcare workers don't even really know they're sick and they're going taking care of all these elderly folks in the care homes and spreading this from patient to patient, mm -hmm. unfortunately unaware and it's caused some really drastic effects here, especially in BC. Most of our deaths are related to those care home infections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, t 
tell us about your personal feelings and how you felt when you saw all these reports of the COVID-19 spreading across the world. Were you worried and are you still worried? Yeah, so I'd have to say from the beginning, like I was on my way back from Alberta listening to the CBC radio and they were talking about this when it was first coming out on the news from China. And at that time, the Canadian CDC and experts were saying, oh, it's low risk for Canadians. You know, we shouldn't be that alarmed or concerned. At that time, they thought the viral um, capacity was not, you know, so dangerous. So at that time, I wasn't really worried the first couple of days, but then I started watching the numbers and how fast there was a dramatic impact in China where they were having to open up new hospitals and the death rate and case rate was going up so fast. I started to get nervous. And then from that point on, I was just checking every day the updates and how it was spreading around the world and then other countries being impacted. And when we first started getting cases on Canadian soil, yeah, I became very anxious, uh, scared, fearful, because I knew working in the hospital that I would be one of the physicians uh, encountering these patients on a daily basis and exposing myself and my family and whoever else, you know that I'd be in contact with. So I was quite anxious and I thought, you know, rightfully so uh, because it's something we have never gone through before, at least in my lifetime or my uh, physician experience. So we were quite anxious and I think we put a lot of pressure on administration and the government. And when we started to see those changes, the lockdowns, um, getting people to stay at home and shutting down travel from other countries, even the U.S. border, it made us feel a lot more comfortable and that like we had a chance at treating people and getting ahead of this thing before it just flattened us. Mm -hmm. And so is the healthcare system providing classes for doctors, um, like helping them to deal with their Mm -hmm. stresses and the potential mental health issues that are related to dealing with this crisis? as frontline workers? Yeah, there, there always is uh, available resources for physicians and healthcare workers. We have the you know, Doctors of BC, the College of Physicians, all these different um, organizations. And part of it is always what we call physician wellness or well-being, right? Mm-hmm. We go through a lot of uh, stressful situations. I say part of our job is watching sick people and discussing with families the course of death and dying. And that's one part of this, this disease as well. And so that is good to have those resources available for physicians and healthcare workers to get them through a time like this. Now, if it just stays like this, I think most of us will be okay. The concern was if we got into a situation like Italy and a lot of other European countries and now US, where physicians are put into a situation where they now have to choose between one patient and another who lives and who dies, that is what really traumatizes people, you know, emotionally, ethically, morally. And uh, I think if it got to that, then for sure, a lot of us would be needing those supports a lot more. But even the hospital I work at, as a team that goes around to discuss with healthcare workers and, and nurses to, you know, make sure everyone is at least their fears are addressed so that we can go about this confidently and do what we have to do. Right. Right. It's wonderful. Well, it's good to know that that support is there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are now what epidemiologists are calling the first wave of this virus. Um, 
they're expecting a second and a third wave and that that could continue like what are your thoughts on that yeah as with most viral illnesses it's a seasonal thing almost where in between somewhere like the normal flu influenza between november and you know the end of march april may is the normal flu season then once we get to summer for some reason these always kind of dwindle down and not even become problem or foreseeable mm. issue. Mm -hmm. So they're suspecting that within the next few months here, weeks, that we're going to see that same type of course uh, with this coronavirus. So it will kind of dwindle off, but we know that the fall will come when everybody returns back to normal life, school potentially will be reinstated. So we're worried that at that time, you know, September, October, we'll see a second flare up because I don't think by that time it will be completely, you know, worldwide eliminated. So as long as it's out there somewhere, there's a chance that this will flare up again. Even China now is seeing like what you could almost call a second wave from travelers going back there. They had almost eliminated it. Now there's more cases there again, probably from other areas of the world. Right, 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 right. I was doing, yeah, doing some research on, on the Spanish flu yesterday and I, I saw that it started uh, you know, in an, in an area of Kansas, and then it was taken with the troops over to Europe, and it spread throughout the world. And then all of a sudden, it came back to the United States when the troops started coming home. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it just, you know, it continued. And so this, the second wave seemed like it was worse than the first. Um, and yeah. some, of the, some of the cities were ready, like San Francisco was ready for it. And, and they, they, they weathered the first wave pretty well. And then the, then the second wave, they got hit pretty bad because they didn't see it coming. So, mm -hmm. uh, so we have to be vigilant with this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you think is going to stop it? Well, so there's, there's a few things with viruses. Um, unfortunately, they mutate at a really high rate. So the properties of the virus can always be changing. So it could potentially mutate to a less viral, like less infectious disease or less dangerous disease, and then it would just disappear. Okay. It could also mutate like the Spanish flu, like they thought it actually mutated to a more viral, uh, more lethal uh, disease. So if it actually makes patients sicker, it sounds bad, but it technically would be more controllable then, right? Because then everyone who had it would be symptomatic, easily contained. Uh -huh. um, and then there's this whole idea of social distancing, like it worked in China and some other Asian countries where they basically shut down things for two weeks to a month or had everyone wear masks all the time. And it seems like that also eliminates the virus because it can only live for so long on a surface. So if you, if, and a virus cannot live without a host because it's not a living organism. It's a, you know, a particle with DNA, RNA, and it mm -hmm. uses you to make more so that it infect more patients. So, and then there's always the hope that if there's some kind of treatment or cure that would come about, I'm less hopeful about that. And the medical field is always working on things like vaccines because in modern medicine, that's what we use to treat, you know, prevent, not treat, prevent people from getting uh, the illness. And then the last one is herd immunity, means that most of the population has been exposed to it and has innate immunity, like they're gonna be immune so they won't get it again. And then that's what keeps everyone else safe. But uh, they just increased, there's an R-naught, they call it, the 
to 5.6 and my oh. friend was doing calculations and he said that means 82% of people would have to be infected in order to get herd immunity. So that doesn't seem like a good option right now. And that's why a lot of the world's on lockdown, just because that's, if you do the math, 2% dead of, of 82% is a huge number. That's mm. a lot. Of, yeah, that's it's a lot a of lot. people. Yeah. 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 So, um, Dr. Kapersky, can you talk about some natural remedies that people can do to boost their immunity? Um, I'm thinking of taking supplements, getting enough sleep, and things like that. And what do you do, and what would you recommend? Yeah, I, I don't normally take supplements. I usually just eat good and healthy diet. But when this started out and we were starting to see the first few in our hospital, I told my wife, go buy like, you know, some vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and multivitamin. And I started taking all of it. Now I can't tell people the doses. I usually take like double the recommended dose of vitamin C. It's probably not harmful unless you have kidney stones, shouldn't do that. <laughs> but I feel like if you're going to bolster your immune system a bit with vitamins, it's pretty helpful. And then eating, you know, a regularly healthy uh, diet. Sleep is always important. You know, most North Americans probably don't sleep enough. I don't sleep enough. But uh, seven, eight, you know, hours, they say, is it should be the minimum amount of sleep a person should get to maintain their health. Mm -hmm. drinking plenty of fluids unless you have other some other medical condition that you should limit your fluids and then also uh trying to maintain activity and if it's sunny where you are get out in the sunshine because we know that sunshine has the ability to kill you know viruses and bacteria so mm -hmm. all those things really help maintain your health so that if you do encounter something like this hopefully you'll be one of the mildly symptomatic people only or you may not even get it so I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and uh, you're a man of faith and um, how has that helped you to be a Christian dealing with a crisis like COVID-19? You're right on the front lines. Um, I want to talk about that. Yeah. And it was kind of going back to what I was saying before, when this was all coming out initially outbreaking and I felt like this wave coming, it was almost an overwhelming fear like to tell you the truth. And I saw a lot of people in the hospital, like nurses and physicians who were very fearful. Mm -hmm. And after about five or so days, I'm not so sure why, but I started feeling more peace with the situation when I saw that we maybe can take care of this and do things to try to make it more manageable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, little things would pop in my mind, you know, like God telling us not to worry that he would be with us uh, no matter what. Mm. And that he gives us peace, not fear. So I, mm -hmm. I really rely on that understanding that uh, no matter what happens, uh, God is going to be there. And if I devote myself to his cause and helping people, then he's going to be there to protect me uh, yeah. through it. Yeah, that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you have um, any insights from the scriptures or a Bible story or a Bible verse that helps you personally um, to get through this? Yeah, what I looked up because one of my favorite ones, I always know it, but I had to check the Bible verse last night. Isaiah 41, uh, 10, where it says, Fear not, for I am with you. Uh, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Uh, yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
So I think that is very comforting to know that God is always there for us. And he's saying, don't be afraid. You know, I think worrying is one of the most destructive things for people. Yeah. And worrying about this is not going to help anyone or anything. You know, fear and panic is not the way. God said, don't worry, I've got you. Yeah, yeah. Amen. That, I think that must be very uh, important to maintain that, um, especially with your patients. Because mm -hmm. as you said, if you know that worrying and fear is not good for you, then uh, they're looking to you as yes. for comfort. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I actually have a funny story. Um, the first few days, I have to admit, I maybe have spread a little bit of fear and panic, right? Because uh, there was so much in the media and people were asking me questions. And one of the patients says, I don't like you anymore. You, you are just scaring me. <laughs> you know, so I was just saying what the news was saying, right? Which was pretty scary initially. So, but then that personally, when he said that, that may have been the change where I realized, no, this is not what I'm meant to do. I am not meant to, you know, scare patients. I'm meant here to give them confidence that I am here no matter what to take care of them. Yeah, and that's what I do now. And uh, I always have a smile on at work, and people seem to like it. And I try to share cheer and joy rather than fear and panic. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brandon Kapersky, for taking time. I know you're busy, and uh, you've got you've got quite a, a load to carry. And thank you for sharing your heart with us. Um, friends, I just want to remind you again of the words of Jesus. As Dr. Kabersky was sharing with us from the scriptures, uh, Jesus said, um, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And um, so thank you, Dr. Kabersky, for, for joining us. And um, we are uh, so grateful. And perhaps we will be able to, to talk to you again. And, yeah, uh, that'd be great. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay. Take Thank care. Thank you. Okay. You. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye now. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to watch a video of this podcast, please visit iiw.ca. Or you can go to IIW Canada YouTube and click on the videos tab. Once again, thank you so much for listening.